It's time for Vax Talk. Let's talk VPDs. We're shaping the conversation about vaccines. To learn more, visit VaxTalk.org. Welcome to Vax Talk. This is the podcast for people who are happy to take as many COVID vaccines as will become available. Yeah, absolutely. Give them to me every day. I don't care. You know, honestly, I think that you, you get that is the people will ask like, okay, when does it end? When does it end? And I'm, I'm just like, well, as long as the benefits of the vaccine are demonstrated to outweigh the risks of COVID, if you have to do it kind of regularly, that's okay. I, I don't get this idea that like vaccines are something that you need to like be afraid of to get as as little as possible it's confounding to me so we're just going to tell our listeners that if they hear background noise it's because uh dr boonstra is busy being a doctor Mm. and there are apparently children seeking medical care near him right now i think there's just some people like goofing around outside the door but yes (laughs) I was trying to make it sound noble. That too. In any case, my name is Karen Ernst. I'm the executive director of Voices for Vaccines. And I'm Dr. Nathan Booster. I'm a general pediatrician here in Blank Children's Hospital in Des Moines, Iowa. And we have an, an absolutely terrific episode for you today. I am going to interview Dr. Caitlin Jettelina, a who is also known as your local epidemiologist about the Omicron variant or Omicron. I don't care how you Mm -hmm. say it as long as you don't say it Omnicron. I say Unicron because I'm a big Transformers geek. That that works for me. I'm okay with that. (laughs) Um, But before we get to that, let's do a little bit of Around the Web. All righty. Why don't I go first? I wanted to talk a little bit about myocarditis. So one of the things we uh, hear about is this risk of myocarditis from the um, mRNA vaccines, which is a true thing. It's worth you know acknowledging that we know that there is a small but real risk in a kind of that upper teen, younger adult age range males of myocarditis from the mRNA vaccines. And you hear about that a lot. That's the thing when I talk with families that everyone's heard about and they want to find out more information about. Um, but what I think, and that risk is, you know, somewhere on there, it depends on the study, but somewhere on the order, I would say of one in 7,000 second doses. And it's generally mild. And even though it's eyebrow raising to think about some inflammation around the heart, um, it, it is generally mild and it's pretty rare. What we don't hear about is the risk of the same thing, myocarditis, from COVID virus itself. And I think it is under-recognized how common that is, how much more common that is from the virus than the vaccine. And so one article I want to point our listeners to is the recent article by Tara Haley, who wrote for National Geographic, and that is... Uh, entitled The Real Risk of Heart Inflammation to Kids is from COVID-19, Not the Vaccine. And I agree wholeheartedly. If I want to protect kids' hearts, uh, I want them to be immunized because whether you look at the risk of myocarditis from um, kind of the virus itself or from the syndrome, the MISC, that some kids get from the virus, that risk of heart inflammation is quite a bit higher. 
um, in kids from the virus, not the vaccine. And we actually have a lot of reasons to think that that risk is going to be lower in this 5 to 11 year age range. The the peak of myocarditis tends to be uh, it, from other sources because we know other viruses cause myocarditis. That tends to be in that upper teen, younger adult range and it kind of bell curves down from there. We see less myocarditis in younger age groups. And even with the vaccine, with the Pfizer vaccine, we saw lower rates in that 12 to 15 year age group than the 16 to 19 year age group. And so we expect that trend would continue. The trials in the 5 to 11 year olds didn't have any cases of myocarditis, but they're not large enough to detect that rare of an event. So we're going to kind of watch and see what that real risk is, but it's expected to be quite low. So anyway, take a reading of this article. Uh, and we'll put it in the show notes and you can kind of get the uh, gist of that. Yeah, it's a great article. And I'm so glad you covered that. I, I will say the first time I ever heard of myocarditis was actually mm-hmm. um, someone got it after uh, influenza. Um, yeah. Oh, it's super common from other viruses. It can happen. Right. So it, I, I think a lot of people just don't realize that. And think that this is something that's super scary from this vaccine. But the reality is that, I mean, nobody wants it to happen. I'm not trying to, like, minimize myocarditis and heart inflammation. That's bad. But if you really want to protect against it, getting immunized against this, as well as getting immunized against other viruses that you can immunize against, is a way to protect the heart. Absolutely. Well, I'm going to pivot to my around the web. Uh, Mine is a little weirder. Uh, (laughs) Yesterday, there was this amazing article about something I had actually been following um, from our friend Brandy Zadrozny at NBC News, and it's about, the title of the article is Magic Dirt, How the Internet Fueled and Defeated the Pandemic's Weirdest MLM. So... (laughs) I've not read this article yet, so I can't wait to tell me about it. Oh, it's so great. I mean, first of all, um, Brandy always does a great job with her articles mm-hmm. because it reads like a story, right? Like you're yeah. you're taken along on this journey. It's about a pyramid scheme um, called Black Oxygen Organics concocted by this naturopath <laughs> Reiki master dude in Canada. And mm-hmm. it is dirt. They are selling <laughs> dirt that they call fulvic acid. Uh, and you're supposed to <clears throat> bathe in it, like mud mask on your face with it, drink it, eat it. Like it is supposed to go like all over your body and it's supposed to cure everything, which is always, you know, as we say, if something's supposed to cure everything, it probably cures nothing. Uh yeah. <laughs> Well, the the thing about this is that uh, it is very popular among COVID deniers and anti-vaxxers. And that's why I had actually been sort of tracking what they call BOO, B-O-O, Black Oxygen Organics, (laughs) uh, and noticing like how many of them were like, don't take the vaccine, eat this dirt instead, which is, I mean, uh, it makes you sound... Maybe not quite like you got a full picnic basket mm-hmm. with you. Um, 
But Doesn't the, it sound like the ultimate punked? Like, oh, yeah, no, no, okay, put this dirt on you, uh, great, okay, good, now eat that, eat that dirt. Oh, yeah, you're doing great. I, I mean, the <laughs> only thing they could do would be like, we're going to take like a tiny bit, like just like the spike protein from a virus and uh-huh. inject you with it, and then you'll build antibodies. It's homeopathic <laughs> and natural. Yeah. Uh, but the... um. There's sort of this money quote in in the article. It's they have, of course, you know, the company to all of their quote direct sellers uh, produces a magazine that they sent to them mm-hmm. called The Bog. And in The Bog, there's an article of the one of their top sellers, right, who yeah. talks about how great COVID has been for the industry. And her, oh her, her quote, you know, we've got like, what, 780,000 people in the United States have died from COVID. Her quote is, mm-hmm. it's been kind of a blessing. Oh, my gosh. <laughs> how warped your thinking has to been. Or, I'm sorry. How warped your thinking has to be to think, I'm going to sell people this dirt and it's super mm-hmm. great because there's COVID around and, you know, we've got all sorts of like propaganda partially infiltrated by like countries that want to destroy us from the outside and grifters from the inside. I'm going to tell people to eat dirt instead of taking the vaccine. Sure, <sighs> almost a million of them will die. But oh it's going to be so great for me and my MLM sales. You know, I think that highlights like how different it is for legitimate, uh, well, for doctors and other healthcare workers where we're really busy from something because something bad is happening. We get to the end of the day and we're like, that was awful. Oh my gosh. Mm-hmm. I don't want to do that again. I don't want this to happen anymore. And whereas, People who are selling these kinds of products and scamming people are like, oh, this is great for business. Fantastic. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, I have a friend on Facebook. Actually, she I shouldn't call her a friend on Facebook. She's from I know her from high school and she mm-hmm. is an ER nurse mm-hmm. um, and just sort of like a spunky, fantastic human being. Um, who has like the most adorable dog in the world. But she she posted this like huge rant on Facebook about how awful nursing is right now. Mm-hmm. Um, she, you know, she says it's a beat down every day robbing us of our virtues. It's going to take years for healthcare workers on the front lines to recover from this. Uh, let go of anger and feel and f- fear and guilt. The mental and physical mm-hmm. tolls of this virus has claimed will cost our our hospital and communities more than you can ever imagine. Nursing has forever changed from a calling to a curse. So, I mean, that's like, mm. that's, the, that's the side of people actually taking care of COVID patients mm-hmm. and not, you know, yep. coming up it's with a, a new grift. Uh, so it's, it's, it's terrible. If you want to take care of healthcare workers, uh, first of all, get the vaccine. Mm-hmm. Second of all, you know, mind your speed when you're driving. Like, don't get in any mm-hmm. auto accidents. <laughs> Take your medications that have been prescribed to you, especially like your heart and cholesterol and blood pressure medications. Like, don't end mm-hmm. up in the ER, whatever you can do. Like, yep. <laughs> you know, when you're playing sports, don't be a stupid hot shot and, you know, 
sprain your knee real bad. Like, just take care of yourself for a while so that our healthcare workers can maybe have a breath during the day. Yeah. If you don't care about yourself, care about the healthcare workers at least. Do it for them. Exactly. Drive safely. All right. Well, I think when we come back, we will talk to your local epidemiologist, Dr. Caitlin Jetalina. We are now joined by Dr. Caitlin Jetalina, who is a an epidemiologist of some renown through her substack and her social media presence on your local epidemiologist, but she has real credentials too. She is a PhD in epidemiology. She is a professor of epidemiology in a school of public health. And I looked up her CV online and it's 30 pages long. So I am not taking you through all her credentials. Just believe me. Welcome, Caitlin. (laughs) Hi, thanks for having me. Absolutely. I want to start way at the beginning. So I want to just get some basics down. I want to start with, you know, a lot of times on this podcast, we talk to doctors. One of our favorite doctors to talk to is Paul Offit. Um, We've talked to Stanley Plotkin. Um, And then, of course, uh, Dr. Boonstra, who's not here, is a doctor. But you're a different kind of doctor. You're you're what they call a FUD. Um, And you and you you've studied epidemiology. And I think a lot of people hear epidemiology and they understand that public health is a thing. But I've been on social media a lot. And I really, truly believe that people don't understand what public health is and certainly have no idea what epidemiology is. And so can you sort of explain to us how epidemiology is different from, say, straight medicine? Yeah, and I will say, um, you know, a lot of people aren't alone. Before the pandemic, a lot of people thought I was a a skin doctor because of the epidemiologist name. And so at least the silver lining is that some people now know what the word means um, or some sort of correlation. You know, the best kind of comparison I can give to a medical doctor is medical doctors treat people one-on-one. Um, They treat uh, a patient at a time, you know, deep dive into their genetics and et cetera, while epidemiologists or even public health specialists focus on treating populations at a time. Um, And so what I'll do, you know, in my research lab is look at hundreds and thousands and millions of people at a time to try and figure out patterns on how to, um, one, prevent health outcomes, negative health outcomes like mortality, but also um, once someone gets a health outcome like um, heart disease or cancer, how do we prevent it on a secondary level and even a tertiary level? And so um, there, the, and people are probably confused because public health is a massive umbrella. I mean, we span topics, like I said, all the way from cancer. I do violence epidemiology. And so what I focus on is a lot of how does violence spread like infectious diseases? A lot of other people um, do HIV. So it's a really broad category. And then, like you said, under the public health umbrella are epidemiologists and our job is to look at the patterns, um, find patterns, because if there are patterns, 
um, then that means the disease or event is not random. And if it's not random, it's preventable. Um, and that's really kind of our mantra, uh, high level. <laughs> I love that. If it's not random, it's preventable. And that kind of brings us to COVID, but it also presents someone like you a particular challenge because in the last few years, I won't even say during the pandemic because it predated that, there was definitely a big push for people concerned about their own individual liberties, um, also known as their personal freedom, and them not wanting to be sort of forced into a common good scenario. So how do we get people who are really concerned possibly for incredibly genuine reasons about their individual liberties to pay attention to what someone like you who is looking at population health ha has to say. Yeah, I, I think it's been, a, it's, and I don't think it's been a common theme throughout the pandemic, but even before the pandemic, um, you know, I think that the first really thing I say is that infectious diseases, uh, they violate the assumption of independence. What someone, what you do, what you decide to do today, what your actions are will directly impact those around you. Um, and I, I think that's a valuable perspective that a lot of people don't recognize because that's not the same as largely for like diabetes, right? That if you have diabetes, that doesn't necessarily mean the person next to you will have it. And so infectious diseases has this added layer of um, a team approach. We have to have a team approach. And so, so yeah, it's, it's, it's a difficult balance to, it's a difficult thing to balance um, this individual right and perspective to the population right and perspective, but they aren't, they can't be siloed or it's, we're not going to get out of this thing. Um, there has to be some sort of common ground. Um, and, and for us to listen to each other, not just hear each other, but listen and see where that common ground is. Okay, and for listeners at home, my cat is attacking a die that he found. So that will be the background noise you hear. It's a, it's a very fierce die. Um, so that sort of leads us then into COVID and in particular, Omicron. So can you explain to us why you can't tell us right now what's going to happen with Omicron? Like, I want to know... Is it going to be worse? Um, are we going to have a huge surge? Is everyone going to die? Am I going to get sick? Am, am I going to need vaccines every year? Why can't you tell me that right now? Yeah, I mean, the number one reason, and we're very lucky for this reason, was we caught it incredibly early. Um, South African scientists, scientists in Botswana were on top of this incredibly quickly. And that's good because that takes us out of this reactive response we've always been in and really a proactive response. The challenge with that though, as you have probably seen over the past week is how do you communicate that um, to the public? How do you bring the public along for the ride to show them how the science is unfolding in real time? And um, that's, 
that's been, you know, the, the, the hard part about this week. Um, and we don't know a lot. We are every day, we are getting more and more pieces of the puzzle, but one big piece of that puzzle is lab scientists, um, lab scientists right now, they are creating pseudo viruses. So that means it's a fake virus they're going to use in the lab. They're going to attach the Omicron spike to it and they have to let it grow. And that growth, you know, all of those steps take a day or two. And if you add a couple of days together, it'll take a week or two. But once there's enough growth, what they'll do is put, you know, a few vials of people's vaccinated blood onto a Petri dish and see how the Omicron spike protein, um, how our antibodies respond to the Omicron spike protein, how many antibodies attach and how tightly do they attach. So we are at the mercy of time with the lab studies. Those should be coming out though. I, you know, very soon, I would say the next week or so. The other thing, so we, that's the lab studies. We also have to marry that with, I call it the real world studies, right? A lab is very controlled. It's, you know, temperature controlled, it's sterile. That doesn't necessarily mean what happens in the lab will happen in the real world with genetics and environment and climate. So we also have to see how things are unfolding, what the patterns are on the ground. And again, with that, we're at the mercy of time. Um, we unfortunately or fortunately are seeing more cases and more cases so we can understand what those patterns are, how quickly that spread is, what is the severity among patients. Um, but, it, but both of them do take time. So... As you're saying, we're going to see more cases. Um, I live in the state of Minnesota, and in the past few hours, we just learned of a new Omicron case in our state, um, yeah. contracted by someone who had both doses of vaccine and a booster, and had gone to an anime convention in New York City. So I, I blame anime, just so everyone knows. <laughs> um, came home, did a PCR test. It was positive. Um, the state did, uh, fortunately I live in a state that has pretty good surveillance. Um, and they not just pretty good, really good surveillance. I think you guys sequenced up to 20% of your tests, which is insanely good. Yeah. We have a wonderful department of health and, uh, they're really good partners with some impressive healthcare systems in our state too. I'm not just Mayo clinic, but a, a number of great healthcare systems like health partners, which is a vaccine data safety data link site. Um, so, I mean, we have a lot of robust systems here always makes me worry for states where public health hasn't been a priority and they have been underfunded because I think we found it in Minnesota because we were doing the surveillance, not because it landed in Minnesota second to California. Um, but well, I, go ahead. I was just going to say, I think it's an important comparison to make um, from California to Minnesota. So the Minnesota case is communities transmission. Um, that, that individual didn't travel directly from South Africa, unlike California's, right? And so the discovery of both of those tell us two slightly different things. And I think you're right. I am actually very concerned that um, we have a state that um, catches, you know, 20 percent or uh, uh, surveillance, a uh, genomic surveillance of 20 percent of their their tests, and they just found one now. You know, how long is it going to be until the states 
I'm in Texas or somewhere else that doesn't have those robust systems um, because it's already here, you know, it's already spreading. It was just a matter of finding it. Um, but, but yeah, I think those are great points. Yeah. And actually you answered exactly the question I was going to ask, like, what, what does that tell us? Uh, but also, you know, I'm thinking back to the beginning of the pandemic when uh, testing was so spotty, it was so hard to get tested at the beginning. And I always told people, you know, whatever the numbers are, where you're at, multiply them by at least 10, if not a hundred. So as we're looking at Omicron numbers, um, you know, two in the US so far. I mean, by the time people are listening to this, it's gonna be more than that. Um, I mean, how long has it actually been here, do you think? How how many do, are there that we're missing? What, what sort of like estimates can we make about that in our brains that, you know, our guesses, I'm not gonna make you, like, I'm not gonna make you sign a piece of paper being like, I swear <laughs> this is the truth, but you know, what should we be thinking about as far as this and its spread? It's such a good question. And I am not even going to try and guess. Um, you know, I think the California case was an incredible example that this was here before Thanksgiving. And that is quite concerning to epidemiologists because last Thanksgiving, it was a super spreader, many like thousands of mini super spreader events. And so that means we are mixing Omicron with our Thanksgivings. Um, and what will that look like going into the winter is one of the key questions. I think the other key question, honestly, is we also don't know much about Omicron. Um, we think it's more transmissible than Delta. We have preliminary evidence to show that it is that just came out yesterday, but it doesn't necessarily have to be more transmissible. And if we have, we're in the United States with a really high level of Delta, unlike South um, Africa. And so there is a possibility that Delta can't be pushed away from Omicron. Um, and in that case, then we quote unquote, just have Delta, which is still a major problem, but we still don't know enough. Um, and I know people are sick of us saying that we don't know, but we truly don't. Um, it will unfold in the next week or so. So while we don't know things, <laughs> what can we do to keep ourselves safe in case it is a bad scenario? I'm not going to say worst case. Cause I really think that, um, we overuse that fear tactic too often, but just like something bad. If this is bad, we don't want to get it. What can we do as individuals? Yeah, I think you make a, well, first of all, make a good point. We're not going to start from square one. Um, we're not going to have a reset into March, 2020. There's not going to be lockdowns. And that's for a couple of reasons. One, we have, you know, our vaccines will work to some extent, the question is, to what extent is that? And the even bigger question is, how well do boosters protect? Um, so we'll see that. Uh, we also know what works. You know, masks reduce transmission by 58%. It's not perfect, but that helps a whole lot with transmission if everyone did it. The other thing that we have to our disposal right now is testing. Like you said, rapid antigen testing. Um, the rapid antigen testing uh, manufacturers came out this week saying that their tests still work against Omicron. And the reason for that is because those tests 
target another part of the virus, not the spike protein. And so we can really rely on what we know right now, um, as long as we can, you know, get the word out that people need to get boosted, that they need the right cadence and to do you know, rapid antigen testing, um, to wear masks inside, to ventilate spaces, and to, and most importantly, encourage others to do the, all of the above. Yeah, I love that. Um, that's, I mean, that's one level when we're talking about personal freedom, there's, there's a flip side of that, and that's personal responsibility. And I think that there's a lot that people can do on an individual level to be responsible for their own health, but then that also is the helps them take responsibility for their family's health and safety and for their, you know, broader community's health and safety. Um, sorry, just hang on, Kevin. This is a pause because Karen's brain is starting to work again. Okay. You know, speaking of what we don't know about Omicron or Omicron, I've heard it pronounced both ways. I've also heard it pronounced Omnicron, by the way, which is, that is incorrect. Um, and I just want to mention that former Minnesota Viking and um, current anti-vaxxer Matt Burke pointed out that Omnicron, if you rearrange the letters, spells moronic, which congratulations, Matt Burke. Sorry, <laughs> I had to get that out there. Um, Who has time to do that? <laughs> someone who's a former football player who went to Harvard. Uh, so <laughs> we there are things that we do know about Omicron, which is that, um, you know, it's a it's far more mutated than Delta. Um, and part of that always makes me sort of back up because I think that people really don't understand how those mutations happen, how we make variants. And I, I've seen a lot of finger pointing online. Um, today I saw a meme on Facebook that showed that the Greek letter Delta is a triangle and the Omicron letter looks like an I, which it doesn't. And then, so put them together and you have the Illuminati. So there are definitely people who think that um, this is staged, this is created, this is fake. But uh, that is, that's a lot of human beings in on that particular conspiracy um, to make that happen. And so I'm going to go ahead and say that it's real, but how does it, how does it actually happen? It doesn't happen in a lab and it doesn't happen in a secret back room where people just decide it's going to happen. So what, how do these mutations get made? Yeah. So there's a couple of ways and this one, and this is what kind of brought the way this one looked was really brought on our radar. Um, a lot of scientists were, including myself, were really paying attention to the Delta, Delta variants. Um, we thought that uh, the next kind of big threat would be a uh, Delta plus, you know, somehow the Delta would uh, uh, mutate to be, you know, escape our vaccines a little more. Uh, but that wasn't the case. Uh, this is not a Delta plus variant. This came far from Delta plus on the family tree of SARS-CoV-2 mutations. And so that tells us that this mutation kind of came from maybe two different sources. <clears throat> One is animal reservoirs. We have seen uh, that uh, animals can carry SARS-CoV-2. 
And what that means is they'll carry it. It'll mutate among themselves when it transfers from animal to animal. And then somehow it'll jump back to humans. Um, and that makes sense because we haven't seen this changing as it went. It made a big jump on our radar. The other way that this can happen is it can mutate over time in an immunocompromised individual. And this actually happened with alpha um, in particular, was that, you know, the immunocompromised will have the virus kind of live inside of them for a couple months and it'll mutate when it's in there and they won't feel necessarily sick but it'll, it'll be living in there because their body can't um, clear the virus. And then once it mutates and mutates and mutates, this immunocompromise comes into contact with someone a few months later, then it jumps. And so that's where the two hypotheses are right now. What happened? Um, I have a, I don't know if I have a, I have a feeling it's more from the immunocompromised but it's certainly a possibility with the animal reservoirs. We may never know. That is that is super interesting. Um, I'm so glad I asked you that. I had no idea that that, that was how it happened. Uh, it makes me though think about who's getting COVID right now and who's pro protected against getting COVID. And that sort of brings us into the global health sphere as far as where vaccines are. Are we putting ourselves at greater risk by sort of hoarding the vaccines in the high income countries um, and not getting them to the people who need them in the low and middle income countries? It's a very complicated answer. Um, I will say that it doesn't help. Um, we, you know, what happens, for example, in South Africa or Colombia with Mu or wherever that, you know, what happens in another country will directly affect us. Like I said, infectious disease um, violates the assumption of independence. We're all in this together. I think that what makes it more complicated is. One, these vaccines are very hard to distribute, specifically the mRNA vaccines. And so even if we started shipping them to African countries, um, the storage is difficult. Uh, the transportation is difficult. And so that's why it's really necessary to develop vaccines with all types of different biotechnologies. Um, for example, Peter Hodes in Houston right now is trying to create a vaccine for kids in Africa that don't need this type of um, storage. He just has had a hard time getting um, uh, the U.S. government to fund it because they don't find a need for it here, right? And so that's one issue. The other big issue, and I actually didn't realize this until Omicron, was uh, misinformation. So South Africa and a few other countries in Africa actually have been telling Pfizer to stop sending them vaccines, not because people, you know, everyone's getting vaccinated. It's because people, they have enough supply and they're not getting vaccinated. Um, and that's because of misinformation, disinformation, exactly what we're seeing here in the United States. And so, you know, the, the, the solution to this is much more deep, much more complex than let's just start shipping vaccines everywhere. Um, I think the solution will have to be married with how do we start educating people? 
how do we start listening to people's concerns with a place of empathy, not just telling, 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 um, and how can we be more innovative in our biotechnology to get vaccines to where they need to go? Um, and that is really the probably trillion dollar question right now. And um, it, it's difficult to answer. Thank you so much for that really thoughtful answer. Um, you know, all of, all of the good answers have nuance, right? All of the <laughs> bad answers are simple and easy to parse. But when we, really, when we really want a good and true answer, we have to really think through some hard things. And one of the hard things that has happened in the past couple of days is um, stopping travel from some, some Southern African countries. I've seen a lot of controversy about this online um because of the countries targeted for the travel bans or i should say travel restrictions really and the countries that actually have cases of this new variant but is is this are these travel restrictions going to help us as we are trying to work through what what omicron is yeah, it's a good question. And you're right. Uh, people have very strong opinions. I think I'm one of those that have a strong opinion. Um, I think that we need to balance uh, benefits with risk of a travel restriction. Uh, a travel restriction to a few select countries is not going to work. It didn't work. Omicron was here a week before the Biden travel ban to South Africa. Um, and we don't even know if it started in South Africa. They were just the one, first ones to identify it. So, so yeah, I mean, maybe a travel ban will slow down travel a little and decrease the number of seeds this thing starts at, but it does a whole lot of damage though, too. It perpetuates disease-related stigma. It also... Um, interestingly, uh, has stopped supply. Oh my God! It has stopped supply to South Africa. So the scientists that are trying to answer the scientific questions we all need answered don't have enough reagents for their lab because all flights were stopped. And so it's just it doesn't work. Now I will say though, if you did a travel ban for all countries. I mean, shut down your borders like Israel did, like Australia continues to do. That works. Um, but you have to do it with everyone and you have to do it really quick. And neither of those were our approach and our policy. And so, so no, I, I think I've like, if you can't hear, I have a very strong opinion that, you know, this, this half, I was gonna say half asked, but half travel ban is just not an evidence-based public health solution and you can say half-assed we have an e on our podcast so that okay. we can like half-assed <laughs> but really like go either way like go all the way either direction right there's this middle ground thing isn't isn't going to work so you are definitely not buying the explanation that it buys us a little bit more time to figure this out. She's shaking her head. No, no, I don't. I don't, you know, and what, what are we going to figure out? I mean, we have the tools we have right here, you know? Yeah. 
Biden had actually a great strategy that came out today, free testing. But why has it taken 21 months for people to get free testing? And not only that, but um, free testing through insurance. So the people that actually need the free testing under uninsured are still going to have a problem with access. And so, again, I know these are really complex policy issues, and I have so much empathy for those that are trying to make the decisions and they are very hard decisions, but um, we can also be smart at it, about it at the same time and use some science to drive that. Yeah, I didn't realize that most of the country didn't have free testing because, again, if I want to get a test in the state of Minnesota, I drive to the airport. I go like in the little special entrance. They give me a tube. I spit in it for like five minutes. And then two days later, I get an email telling me whether I'm positive or negative, and I don't have to pay a dime, and I don't have to bill my insurance. So testing- Girl, just come to Texas. <laughs> it's not free here. Well, that's the problem, though. I mean, there has to be some equitable strategies around this virus, because it's not like it gets to the border between Minnesota and South Dakota and says- you know, oh, you know, on this side of the border, Christy Nome is the governor. So we're just going to stay here because on that side of the border, they're doing testing and they're doing, you know, genomic sequencing and everything else. It, it, the, the virus doesn't care. It's, you know, it's a happy border hopper. Well, we actually, I don't know if people remember or even realized it, but in the beginning of the pandemic, we're talking like April 2020, we saw these testing disparities um, loud and clear. Um, here in Dallas, we had a map. I remember it. And everything above this freeway called the 30, everything north, there was 120 testing sites. Everything south of the 30, there were two. And can you guess what the social economic status was of those above this freeway and below? I mean, it's and it's it's the same kind of thing, but more on a state level we're talking about now. And, and that's why I'm really glad to see a federal response to testing. I think they're the really the only ones with that amount of leverage with, for example, insurance companies to do something. But um, we, like you said, really need to figure out equitable ways to do it as well. Other than the fantastic questions I've asked you. Uh, <laughs> what are you hearing from people out in internet land as far as uh, this new variant? You know, interestingly, well, maybe not. It's interesting to me because I'm so in the weeds with everything. Everyone's worrying what to do for the holidays. Um, can you go on an airplane? Can you see your, unvac or your vaccinated boosted grandma can't, should we get tested? Um, and at first I was like, you guys, people, we don't even know anything about this. Like, can we just hold our horses for one week? But I get it. You know, it's around the corner. Everyone wants to try and be safe. And so what I'm telling everyone right now is, you know, stick to what we know, get boosted. So you're fully protected for Christmas or, you know, the holiday season to, um, if you travel, um, especially on a plane, wear an N95, um, upgrade your mask, uh, three, really leverage antigen testing. It has to be done in cadence. It has to do, be done, you know, a couple times before the event every other day. 
Um, and if we stick to those three things, I think that you will be as safe as possible as of today, December 2nd, 2021, you know, this is going to change rapidly, but I, w- I certainly wouldn't cancel plane tickets. Um, but you know, be ready and be flexible if something does change down the road. For sure. And I want to just put a plug in. Um, I don't get anything for this, but the Binax now at home antigen tests, um, are, you know, you can buy two of them for $23.99 right now at my local Walgreens. So, uh, no, no one's paying me anything for saying that, but you know, those are simple to use. They're right there. And, um, I've heard them described as a day pass. So, you know, you take the test and you're like, okay, right now I'm not going to get anyone else sick. So I'm good. So that is, uh, maybe something that you, um, open first in your Christmas stockings <laughs> or whatever tradition you have this holiday. Yeah, that's one way to do it, right? Yeah. Merry Christmas, kids. <laughs> Give me your nose. It's fine. It's fun. It was so great talking to you, Caitlin, today. Yeah, no, thanks for having me. This is this is fun. Yeah, we'll have to have you back again. This is fantastic. Um, <laughs> where can people find you? You have a sub stack and you have all sorts of good social media presence. Where should they go to find you first? Yeah, you know, if um, I, I will say go to my sub stack first, it's called your local epidemiologist. I try and update people in layman's terms of things that are happening as we go, especially with Omicron. Um, I'm also, you know, on Facebook and Instagram and Twitter and everything else. Um, but really my main hub is uh, Substack and I just copy and paste to the others. <laughs> I love so, it. Um, so yeah, go there if you need some help or some um, evidence-based guidance and um, get vaccinated if you're not vaccinated. Fabulous. Uh, yeah, so her Substack is well worth reading. Thank you everybody for listening in and joining us today. Uh, Please keep yourself safe over the holidays. My name is Karen Ernst. I'm the Executive Director of Voices for Vaccines. You can find us at our wonderful, big, glossy, new, beautiful website, voicesforvaccines.org. And I'm Dr. Nathan Boonstra from Blink Jones Hospital in Des Moines. You can find me mostly on Twitter. Um, my handle is PedsGeekMD. Have a good day. Bye. To learn more, visit faxtalk.org.